Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So the jobs numbers come out and the market says, what am I looking at here? The futures went down right off uh, the, the, the quick. The 10-year treasury jumped like, like it was a pole vaulter. But it, you look at it and you're like, wait, what is, what is the issue here? U.S. payrolls rise 199,000. Unemployment rate is 3.7%. Shouldn't I be happy? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. That's the, that's the place to find all the good stuff. I'm looking at the BLS report right here. Now, the unemployment rate is not the number that I pay attention to, and I think that more and more people are not paying attention to because the unemployment rate does not uh, engage the amount of people who have left the workforce. It doesn't talk about the, the, the people, the, the, the re, one of the real issues regarding the amount of job openings, which I'll get to in, in, in a second. But there will be the people like the Wall Street Journal who will tell you that this shows that the soft landing is coming into view. Now, we've discussed the soft landing. This is an idea where inflation comes down, but it's not necessarily connected to a recession. So uh, you've got uh, uh, economists that, for example, Bank of America, saying that the trends are pointing in the right direction where you are seeing things pro- pro- progress, I should say, toward the soft landing and that the labor market that's getting into better and better balance over time. Now, I don't know if that's 100% true because we had a whole deep discussion regarding the amount of open jobs in, in America. And the amount of opening jobs in America went down to 8.7 million and it didn't make any sense a- at all. How is this a, a good thing or is this a good thing? How this all connects is extremely, extremely important. Uh, I spoke to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis about this and said, all right, let's break this down real quick. This is the one that makes you go, all right, someone take a breath. Take a step back. Can we go through this? Job openings down to 8.7 million in October, which was below the estimate. It's the lowest level since March of 2021. And you're like, oh, so if we're trying to cool the economy, this is this is good. Except the markets didn't react in a positive sense. They kind of went the other way. Now, who knows where they'll end up? But we should be asking ourselves, what does this mean? Does this prove a, a, a level of trend? Does this prove that the increase in interest rates is finally having the effect? We're going to get out of this inflation soon? Or does it go the other way and that people aren't hiring because there's nothing to hire for because nobody's buying? You see, you see the problem? There, Dr. Matt Will joins us, economist at the University of Indianapolis. And doctor, don't let my cold uh, stop anything. My voice will crack. The whole thing is is, is a mess. But I, I texted you, job openings at 8.7 million, good question mark. And you wrote back, this is now a trend, to which I responded, in which direction? So talk to me. <laughs> what does this number mean to you? Well, you know, you and I have been talking about this for a number of months now. Um, that the trend we were, you know, we see data, it's good, it's bad, it's good, it's bad. It's very confusing. But what we see right now 
is we see a trend. This is a trend in the wrong direction. The job openings have been declining from a peak of 12 million down to now 8.7 million. This is a trend in the wrong direction. We keep seeing it changing. It was supposed to be 9.4. So this was a huge miss from what expectations were, and it's now a trend. So we're going to say, what does this mean? This means potentially not a soft landing. So, you know, we t we've been talking about this before. There was that, remember last week, it was 52% of the market thinks that probably things are going to be better. I bet you right now, that's now 52% think things are going to be worse. So let's take a step back. How does having more job openings or less job openings than was anticipated prove uh, that things are getting worse? Because as I, as I stated, and I don't mean to answer my own question here, we have discussed the idea that slowing down the economy is part of what the Fed wants to do. And one would think less jobs means a slower economy to bring down the inflation and then allow interest rates to come down after that. You're saying now, that's see, not I, the case. I've never, I've never said that, that slowing the economy is good or that the Fed wants to. That's a popular statement that people make, but I don't say that. The Fed actually would like the economy to grow. They don't want it to shrink. What they want is more stuff, but they control only the cash. So they would like more stuff. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is a potential recession direction. That's all I'm saying, in the direction of a potential recession because companies are hiring, there's less openings, and the hirings are down. And the quits, the quits have been consistently down. We now have a trend. The quits have been consistently down now for the last few reports which means fewer people are quitting their jobs, means there are more op or fewer openings, and that's not a thing in the good direction, except remember that wild card. We keep talking about the labor shortage. We're still in that labor shortage post-pandemic. So it's this, again, kind of convoluted picture at the moment. So the job openings down refers to the fact that the great resignation is now over. People are sticking with the job that they have, even if they don't like the job. They can't hop to the next gig. There are employers who would still like to hire, but those potential employees aren't out there. And for other employers, they've decided not to hire at all because they don't have as of yet enough sales because of what inflation has done and where this economy is. That's what you're telling me? Um, I think that's part of it. There's also the skills mismatch because we still have a, a, a disconnect between what employers need and what employees are willing to offer, especially in technical fields like engineering and electricians and plumbers and so forth. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, and we could talk for forever on the need for uh, pushing trade schools and moving people in, in that direction. But let's make sure we understand what this means for the economy. This doesn't mean the job openings going down, that the, uh, that the economy is cooling. Rather, it shows an issue that there is no ability for that, that we're, we're losing the ability for growth. Am I hearing it right? Yes. You summarized it well now, and you did when your introduction. I think you, you, you are getting this very well. I wonder if the listeners are, because it's, it's, not a, it's not a simple picture. There is a lot of complications in this. 
and that's and that's why we go over it. So let's make sure uh, that that we do in in a series of of things uh, that you sent to me and texted me before we started. Does this slide to eight point seven million job openings? This signals to you as an economist or you as a layman as a labor shortage, correct? It's well, yes, but that's not what the eight point seven tells me. That doesn't tell me there's a labor shortage. What tells me a labor shortage is we are still 4 million jobs shy of where we should be based on pre-pandemic trajectory. We're still not where we need. We still have a lot of openings. We still don't have enough people to fill them. There's still the labor shortage, which is that great resignation. It hasn't been, it may, the bleeding may have stopped. So what you said a while ago, is it over? I think that the bleeding has stopped but we still haven't recovered our health. We're still not healthy. We still have to be in the intensive care unit. And uh, I think the president is doing nothing to get us out of it. This is where it gets uh, con- con- confusing because uh, it, 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 it would seem to me that a business that isn't selling would make, it would make sense that they would not do the hiring, whether it's to produce the widget or to, or to sell the widget, because there aren't as, as many buyers out there it would seem like smart business practice. And certainly we've seen even in bad markets, the people are able to survive and thrive through that level of, uh, of adapting. Why isn't this something to say, well, this is just normal and then these companies will be leaner and they'll be able to to function better and then they'll have better growth and that will actually be helpful uh in the long run oh there's a lot to what you just said um companies and i don't know if this is the answer and if it's not you 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 tell me but companies because of the fear of of potential recession do not want to hire people they would rather have variable costs. They'd rather outsource their costs. They'd rather, instead of building a, and owning a house, they'd rather rent the house in case something bad happens. And so part of the dynamic you're seeing here is companies, they need skilled labor. The skilled labor isn't there, but they also would let rather someone else hire the labor rather than them hiring themselves as a full-time employee. Yes, but now you're bringing up a, a, a different concept before I was discussing the idea of people not hiring because there aren't as many sales to make and they're adapting to this this new economic environment and that would make sense to me. You're saying that they're not hiring out of fear. Why do you say that? No, no, it, it's both. No, you are correct, Tony. You are correct in saying they don't see future sales and so therefore their the number of openings has dropped. Yes, that, that is a correct statement that you made. But it's also true, this is why I said it's complicated, it's also true that to manage the future risk of a recession, when they hire, they would prefer to outsource it or hire a variable cost rather than a fixed cost. A fixed cost is harder to get rid of. It's easy for a company to lay off an, a contractor or simply tell the contractor, we don't need your services next month. It's more, it's, it's, easier to do that than it is to say to a full-time employee who you had for 20 years we don't need you talking to dr matt will economist at the university of indianapolis i'm looking at sectors where the decline was in job openings retail declined by 102,000. 
Leisure and oh. hospitality by 136,000. I find that interesting as you're starting to head into holiday season. Remember, this was from October, but heading into holiday season that you'd have less of those things. We're seeing more people fly. We saw more people flying uh, regarding Thanksgiving uh, than ever. They screened millions and millions and millions of people did, did TSA, but we see a decline in leisure and hospitality. 217,000 down in financial activities. 238,000 down in education and health services. Did the job opening declines, these sector declines, did any of them stand out for you? Um, No, none of them stood out to me because you just mentioned a whole bunch of declines. This is the byproduct of what we have been talking about. The people have been spending their savings. Their savings have declined. Their savings rate is down. They're putting more money in their credit card. We said, you and I, this can't continue. At some point, you're not going to have any savings left. At some point, your credit card will max out. That's what I think you're seeing here, is simply that that spending binge is now beginning to slow. So we move over to the spending idea, and there was a story about the idea of doomsday spending. I thought it was fascinating because it's really about psychology. People know the economy is bad. They don't feel safe. They don't feel secure. And so they, two things happen. People say, well, it's all going to collapse anyway. Uh, I, don't, I don't care if, if I go bust. I don't care if I pay back my credit card. I might as well get that new TV. I might as well get that new pair of shoes. I might as well get this new this. And you see credit card debt last quarter at $1.08 trillion. And the other side of it is everything's bad. I'm concerned. I'll make myself feel better with the spending and now the spending is not based on affordability but it's rather based on other psychological factors including a kind of like a screw it factor and that means bad news uh for for the future you agree with this assessment about doomsday spending i i will confess that i had not thought of that until you just now brought it up but i in my own experience have anecdotal evidence of people that are doing that it makes complete sense. I'd have, I'm going to have to sleep on it, but my initial reaction is that makes complete sense, and I have seen it myself. Wow. That's not frightening as hell. I mean, it's, it's, every, every single time we talk, it's, it's like it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Even when we see better trend numbers like we've seen in terms of inflation numbers, these other numbers come up, and, it, and you seem to be... Uh, saying to us, none of this signals strength going forward. That's your your overall. None of this signals strength going forward. No, you know, that's not what I say. I always say it's confusing. There's contradictory information. Some says good, some says bad. And even in this interview, I've said that the percentage probability of a bad outcome of a recession just flipped from prob- most likely not to most likely yes. That, that's, that's still on the bubble. I'm, 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 you know, I'll defend myself and say I'm not just a doomsdayer here. I think it's just more likely at this point of a recession than unlikely. And you, you also uh, stated that the idea of a soft landing might very well be off the table, just as a matter of description. What do they mean when they discuss uh, soft landing, and what would a not soft landing look like? Well, a, a soft landing would would be the economy slows. Maybe we have a little negative GDP for one quarter. And then we go on a positive growth trajectory again. A hard landing would be we have uh, layoffs, we have business closures, we have an actual recession, 
you know, that nobody can deny like they denied last year's recession, that would be a hard landing. I keep going back to this, this ever-present reality that this economy is truly uh, schizophrenic, that the, um, the experiences that people are having versus the experience that Wall Street thinks people are having versus the experiences the people want to have are all very, very different things. Um, that you can put five experts in a room and get seven responses to how they think that this is going to go. If you ask me, um, I, have, I have no reason to think that recession won't come if it's come to the rest of the globe. If you ask me, I don't know how anything is going to be soft in, in, in the landing. I think people are already hurt by these things. But I don't want it. I don't want any of it. I would like for things to be better and feel better for everyone. I just think I'm a long way away from what I want. Dr. Matt Will, economist, University of Indianapolis. I appreciate you taking the time. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. Trader Joe's is a bunch of racists. But I'm, I'm not saying it was the headline. Literally... Trader Joe's racist product labeling practice once again lands grocer in social media hot seat because people are terrible and they have nothing else to complain about. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Uh, Trader Joe's uh, is great. We, When we lived in California, of course, Trader Joe's was there. Place is fantastic. In my beloved Indianapolis, there's Trader Joe's. We drive a distance to get there. It's worth it. For what they do, they do extremely well, and they have for years. They are a model of how to do things well, in my view. But they have uh, a series of brands that that they clearly make. And so, for example, they uh, have uh, um, uh, a, a mandarin orange chicken. You can buy it. It's frozen. Mandarin orange chicken. But it's not under the Trader Joe's name. It's under the name Trader Ming's. And I think that when they have like, like, like a salsa or something like that, they'll do not Trader Joe, but Trader Jose. Listen to me carefully. Uh, for Italian food, it's Trader Giotto's, right? That, that's what they have. If they want to sell me kosher brisket under the name Trader Shlomo, feel free. I just want it to be good brisket. You see, I don't have time to be offended by some name I've got university presidents who think it's okay for people to scream for the genocide of people like me and for the blood that pumps through my veins. So I'm not going to worry if some supermarket chain has Trader Moishe's chicken soup. I don't give a damn. And these people don't give a damn. They just have nothing better to do with their lives. Why? Because they have been taught that this is what they're supposed to do with their lives. Find the thing that is unacceptable and make it your rallying cry. How could you not be offended? How could you not stand up? How can you let this injustice go? It's not an injustice. Well, you have to find injustices because if you don't, if you don't find injustices, well, then how are you really a good and decent person? Can you imagine living your life this way? This is how the progressive lives their lives. 
and I would like the progressive to stop shopping at Trader Joe's so I can get my Mandarin orange chicken because it's delicious. Now, full disclosure, I haven't had it yet, but I'm buying it this week because I'm sure it's delicious. These are hateful, vile people who hate everything and want to hate everything. And me, I would just like Trader Joe's to keep on selling. Good work, guys. I'm Tony Katz. This is Tony Katz Today. be recognized for five minutes. Dr. Gay, a Harvard student calling for the mass murder of African Americans is not protected free speech at Harvard, correct? Our commitment to it's free speech... It's a yes speech. or no question. Is that corrected? Is that okay for students to call for the mass murder of African Americans at Harvard? Is that protected free speech? Our commitment to free it's speech It's a yes extends. or no question. Let me ask you this. You are president of Harvard, so I assume you're familiar with the term intifada, correct? I've heard that term, yes. And you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. Are you aware of that? I would assume she's aware of that, just like I would assume she would be aware that the chanting of from the river to the sea is a call to genocide. That was Claudine Gay president of Harvard University, being questioned by Elise Stefanik, that questioning of uh, uh, Gay of Harvard, of the president of MIT, of uh, President McGill of the University of Pennsylvania, has now become part of the conversation regarding what's happening on college campuses. That it's one thing to say that we believe that there should be an interchange or an exchange, I, I should say, of ideas. But this is what's okay? Use the wrong pronoun and you're out. Call for genocide and you're cool. If Riley Gaines wants to speak, well, that's unacceptable. But if someone wants to call for global intifada and try and scare you from coming out of your dorm room, that's just fine. Well, it seems like these college presidents, these Ivy League, or as people like myself now call it the ISIS League, uh, they seem okay with this. So the question is, what is the proper response to this? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. William Jacobson joins us right now, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. Be sure to check out the site and all the good work uh, that they do there. Before we get into maybe a conversation about the difference between the role of government and the role of the university, you are a college professor. You have uh, been a professor while being you, uh, and taking all the heat in the world for the past maybe 10 years now. You watch this happen. You watch these university presidents from the Ivy Leagues give this answer. What was your, what was your take? Well, I think it shows really how um, pathetic the leadership of our most elite universities are. These were not impressive people. Uh, it's a wonder that really three top-ranked schools, two in the Ivy League and one not in the Ivy League, but, you know, the premier, you know, science and technology and math institution in the country, uh, really were so unimpressive. They seemed unprepared. They seemed like they had been told what lines to say, and it seems like they were all prepared to say the same lines. And it really, I think that was my takeaway, is this is what's leading 
our most elite universities, that's really sad. Uh, so that was my initial reaction to it. I think it's Bill Ackman, uh, who uh, is a Harvard alumnus and a donor there. Uh, wait, it was Harvard or, yeah, I think it was Harvard, referring to the fact that Claudine Gay, who is a black woman, uh, got her job because of DEI, which I have no idea how she got uh, her, her her job there, but there's a question of when you talk about non-impressive, I think that there are a bunch of people who said that. How did these women end up in these positions if on a very simple subject, they can't say a call to genocide clearly can be seen as harassment. Now let's get into that. A call to genocide is not seen as harassment? Well, you know, I think uh, we also have to understand how these things are happening on the campuses. They're not happening in quiet conversations where people are expressing their views. They're mobs marching through campus with bullhorns, okay? They're marching through libraries. They're interrupting classes and chanting these things. Certainly in that context, it's harassment and intimidation. So this is not a, you know, can you have the viewpoint that, you know, Israel should be destroyed. Uh, maybe you can have that viewpoint. Can you shout it on a bullhorn while marching with a crowd of 300 people, you know, uh, trying to intimidate everybody around you? And I think that's the, the difference here. And I think that's a huge distinction that it's not just what was said, it's the way it is said is meant to intimidate people on campus. And it's particularly meant to intimidate supporters of Israel, and it's particularly meant to intimidate Jewish students on campus. Because a lot of these things take place targeting Jewish students, like at Cooper Union, uh, where Jewish students were hiding in the library or some room in the building as these mobs were chanting these things right outside the door. So, and a lot of places there's attempts to break into rooms, like that high school in New York City, where they tra trapped a pro-Israel Jewish professor uh, and were chanting these things. So, I mean, these presidents were not, in my estimation, being honest during that hearing. That doesn't mean they committed perjury, but I don't think they were being intellectually honest because they know full well not just what is said and what the intention of what is said, but they know how it is said. And in those contexts, for them to play this game, that it's not intimidation. I think it was the president of MIT, if I'm remembering correctly, said, well, it could be threatening uh, if it's directed at a specific person, but not if it's stated kind of generally. Well, I, I disagree with that. When you have a mob of 300 people trapping Jewish students in rooms, chanting these things, that's intimidation and harassment. Talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. Um, it, it, it certainly does make sense, but I want you to, if you could, try and uh, place it for us as you have seen, whether it be at Cornell or other places, use the wrong pronoun, you could be thrown out of, of the school. They'll have whole uh, assemblies and, and, and forced uh, learnings uh, 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 about this. Um, you engage in this cultural appropriation, engage in, in this um, uh, misgendering, engage and name the, name the thing through the uh, DEI CRT lens and you're gone. You've seen this happen in both schools and in the, in the, in the private sector. How do they think that this doesn't apply? Well, I think, I think you're right. I mean, that gets to a, a point that a lot of people have making have made that if they want 
campuses to be, you know, complete wide open free speech zones. Yeah, that would be great, but they're not. Okay. Speech is highly regulated. Speech is, they have bias response teams. They have concepts of microaggressions. Uh, like if you ask somebody, where are you from? That most people would shrug their shoulders. That's not an offensive. But if you were to ask that question to an Asian student uh, on campuses, you would be accused of a microaggression or you could be accused of a microaggression, uh, you know, suggesting that they're not, you know, from the United States. Um, there's all sorts of insane regulations of speech on campuses. And then for them to show up and say, well, a, a mob of students with bullhorns chanting intifada, intifada, and we all know what that means, uh, and targeting Jewish students is not intimidation uh, and is perfectly acceptable speech. Uh, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't highly regulate speech so that anything that offends anybody is you know, a possible infraction and yet make an exclusion for Jewish students. So this gets to a a conversation about the legal concepts regarding free speech. Uh, we, As we engage the First Amendment, it's that government will make no law. So the government can't say to these people, you're not allowed to scream uh, for, for genocide. If you want to chant from the river to the sea, the government cannot stop you. But the university certainly could stop you and it would seem that if there are these other things, as you're discussing them, that we say, well, we don't allow that, it would fit into that case. The, it, it is the difference, can you describe the difference between what the government is allowed to do and what the university is allowed to do? Sure. Well, if you're a private university, uh, just like in your house, okay, people may have a right to shout certain things on the street, but they don't have the right to come into your living room and shout them. So private property, uh, obviously is not governed by, you know, those restrictions on the prohibition of restrictions on free speech, but the government is. Now, I think it was the woman from uh, MIT again, I'm forgetting which one said what, but I think it was MIT said, well, we construe um, our speech policies uh, to be consistent with the First Amendment. So some schools, and apparently that school says that, you know, if it's allowed under the for, uh, First Amendment, meaning if we, the government can't stop you from doing it, we don't stop you from doing it. But we know that's a lie. <laughs> okay, We know that's a lie on every campus. I don't know if there's a, a single campus which would allow you to say openly on campus things that are offensive to various you know, identity groups. But you have a constitutional right to say them. But there isn't a single campus where you can say them without getting in trouble. So that they're just not being truthful about how they regulate speech on campuses. And that's part of the problem. You are now seeing, and it's Sally Kornbluth, who's the president of, of MIT, you're now seeing the backlash. There has been a conversation that uh, Liz McGill, president of University of Pennsylvania, might lose her gig. Uh, you saw uh, her what looked like a hostage video apology. Uh, you've seen Claudine Gay, president of Harvard, with a really non-apology kind of kind of of statement uh, regarding her her remarks on on campus anti-Semitism. In the college world, has there been from the alumni and donors? I mean, we hear about them here and there, bits and pieces of things. Has there really been a, hey, we're not putting up with this crap anymore. You change or we're out. We're pulling our money right now. Have you seen that in a palpable way? 
you know, I only know what's public information, and it seems like there have been a number of big donors who have done that. I think there will be a backlash against certain schools. I don't think you're seeing the backlash on campuses. Uh, you're seeing the backlash off campuses from alumni and donors who are usually the same thing. So, yeah, I think there will be, but I don't think these you know, top-tier elite universities like MIT, Penn, and Harvard really care, okay? Uh, maybe they will when you get, you know, eight-figure and nine-figure donations pulled, but I don't think they really care. They are so insulated from the world. They consider th themselves above everybody else. They sneer at, you know, most Americans. Uh, so I don't, I think there is a backlash building. I think it's a backlash at the top tier elite schools, but I don't know that it's going to make a difference. And that's the part that uh, I think a lot of people are, are at. You, you see uh, these presidents make this statement. Um, some of them were kind of smiling while they were answering the questions from Representative uh, Stefanik. You certainly have heard of, of people remove large uh, amounts of, of money, but I haven't seen proof that things will change. I mean, I, I talked about this earlier uh, regarding um, uh, the way Jews vote, for example. I'm Jewish. I, I know you are, of course. Uh, are they really going to change the way they vote, uh, the way they vote in, in light of what happened on October 7th and in light of the way that the Progressive Party has really uh, acted in not uh, uh, condemning Hamas, but throwing support their way in groups like the Council for American Islamic Relations and, 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 and others? In your estimation, if you were a betting man, William Jacobson of LegalInsurrection.com, any of these college presidents going to lose their jobs or change their ways? Well, we know that MIT's president is not because last night the board of trustees of MIT offered a full-blown support of her uh, and backing of her. And so she's not going to lose her job. I don't think Harvard's president is going to lose her job. That would have huge implications because of her identity uh, if they were to fire, you know, a black woman president of Harvard. Uh, the one who I think is at risk is McGill for Penn. Uh, and I'm not sure why she's kind of being singled out by people. Uh, I don't know that her performance was that much worse than the others. I think maybe it was a little bit, but she's being singled out. And I think that's probably a reflection of pre-existing anger about what's happening at UPenn. It really, of the three who are there, it's the worst of the schools. Uh, and I know people who are, you know, alums there and they're disgusted at what's happened. It, Penn is the most active anti-Israel campus among the Ivy League campuses, with the possible exception of Columbia. I think Columbia might be worse, but the president of Columbia wasn't testifying to Congress. So I think that I think that's why. So I think there is a significant possibility. I'm not saying it's going to happen. A significant possibility that this is the straw that breaks Liz McGill's back, so to speak, um, using that phrase, that because there was so much upset heading into right. this about what's happening at Penn, that this might just be too much. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. I appreciate it. More coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Buy guns, buy ammo, get trained. Can't say it enough. And I'm going to keep saying it. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. 
there was a guy in Albany, New York, firing a shotgun outside of a synagogue. Last night was the start of Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. Happy Hanukkah to those who celebrate, uh, like uh, my, myself. New York National Guard was put on high alert. The 28-year-old, uh, as of yesterday, not identified, um, taken into custody. This was Temple Israel um, in Buffalo, is, is, is the uh, Albany, I should say, not Buffalo, Albany, the capital uh, of New York. I uh, often discuss how Jews, very specifically, I mean, as as just clear as day, uh, usually represented by these rather liberal rabbis and others, certainly uh, somehow this idea that liberalism and Judaism are are connected and, and they're not, and these people are not in favor of their own best interest. If you have a rabbi who says you can't come to synagogue armed, fire the rabbi or go to another synagogue. It's just not a synagogue that's worth your time. Any synagogue where the leadership doesn't believe that you should go home alive is not a synagogue worth your time. How many more ways do you need to see that your synagogue, your place of worship, is a soft target? How many more times will you need to see it? Exactly how many people sitting next to you will need to die before you grow up? I'm making a very clear declaration here. That Jews, my people, my people, who do not arm up and are prepared and trained to defend themselves, they want it. That's a very rough thing to say. But I'm left with no other place, no other choice, no other direction. What else could it be? They're really this foolish? As foolish as people who believe uh, that, that in this gun-free zone nonsense? Now, you'll see that the guy with the, with the shotgun in front of the synagogue didn't worry about a gun-free zone sign. They're not going to worry about that. You better be worried about your kids and helping them to see tomorrow. Buy guns, buy ammo, get trained. Find everything at TonyCats.com. Monday, everyone. Take care. <laughs>